been with us before, and most of you will probably remember Eric being with us when we were in discussions about um, back in the day with with uh, Light Squared, and that kind of died down, and and so it it wasn't because we didn't have anything to talk about. We everybody got busy, but anyway, it, I was talking with some people about it that issue and its reincarnation um, coming up, or that has occurred, and as legado, I think that's the right pronunciation, and so I contacted uh, the two people that I I depend on the most for these kind of things, Gavin Schrock and and Eric, to get their thoughts on it, so Eric shared some thoughts with me, and then we want to talk about some other things, too, primarily the the GNSS constellations and what they mean for, for the surveying world. So welcome, Eric. Thanks for joining me again. Hey, thanks, Kurt. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, if you, I assume you've kept busy, and uh, are you still writing uh, most of the time, or? Uh, yeah, not not as not writing as much now. Doing a lot of projects. Uh, yeah, and I'll talk about some of those today. But yeah, it's an exciting time now for GNSS. Certainly, I mean, it's the stuff I was writing about, you know, in the last few years about. Uh, four constellations and the benefit of those and and you know i've got a gps lab up here in in portland oregon we play around with a lot of different equipment and different signals and different constellations and so it's uh yeah it's a lot of fun a lot of a lot of things i think uh to look forward to on the horizon it's yes absolutely absolutely so yeah it's been a long time actually it's kind of interesting to to think back it's been holy moly probably seven years since something like that six yeah, years been a while. since yeah. the whole light squared thing came to a head and you know there was lots of activity on that i was i was knee deep in that discussion uh back then um and, and i know that it's sort of surfaced now and again since then you know there's an ongoing i guess the interface between now legato and the fcc and and uh you know, I've I've stayed somewhat in tune with it, but not not immersed in it like I used to be. Uh, just because I, I'm I'm confident that the FCC is going to take the right path. Um, uh, you know, because really, the, what what saved us, I guess, us as a high precision industry last time, it ended up coming down to aviation and defense department, the DoD. Those are the two that that the proposed uh, network was going to hit the hardest. And so that was sort of the catalyst of, of shutting that system down, or at least a proposed system down, and, and forcing them to retool. You know, we were sort of just bystanders or, or just along for the ride. And thank goodness for that, because it would have, you know, would have caused a bunch of headaches uh, for us, certainly. Yeah, that, that's not the kind of thing you... Uh try to deal with on budgets like we have no no it would have been and it's still anyway so there's so they retooled and and uh you know i I get the argument i think they were sort of um i wouldn't say led down the wrong path but they they kind of knew where where they were headed and and uh uh, but that you know they had to have known at some point it wasn't it wasn't going to work but the FCC sort of had a hand in that too, and that they issued a license and and so on. So, but anyway, it's 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 the system actually. I mean, as much complain as 
a lot of folks have done about it. The system showed that it actually worked, right? I mean, the FCC did what they were supposed to do, and and the uh, uh, and it, did, it wasn't deployed because it would have interfered with lots and lots and lots of receivers out there. And so, the system actually worked, as maybe awkward as it was, but it, but it actually did work, and it came out okay on the other side. Yeah, I know we don't want to spend all of our time talking about this issue because you got a lot of other interesting things to talk about. But is there a sort of a thumbnail? Um, observation about the difference in what's being proposed now and what was happening back then. I don't know if it's that simple. Maybe it isn't. But. So, yeah, so from what I've read right now, I mean, they're, 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 they're focused on, see, they've got, this, they've got this pretty powerful satellite that they developed a long time ago. Uh, I think it's called SkyTerra-1. Anyway, it's, it's got this, they have this powerful satellite that, that actually other GNSS companies use to broadcast their corrections over, so it's it's very compatible with GNSS. So one area is that they, and this is all out in public, uh, out in public, you read about it, but is they're they're trying to leverage that satellite in specifically the GNSS world, but it could be others. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not privy to that, but certainly uh, leverage that to broadcast different types of GNSS corrections. Uh, so that's one, and so that, and that's been again, that's been around for for quite a while, and it's it's fully compatible and friendly with GNSS, and hasn't caused a problem at all. And it's always been about their their proposed terrestrial system, uh, which was an adjacent frequency to to GPSL one, and I think they've everybody's accepted that at least the the piece of spectrum that's adjacent to GPSL1 is not going to be used for terrestrial. And so they're looking at the the lower band, this down in the sort of, I think it's 1525 to 1535 megahertz, to see how they may possibly use that for terrestrial. And then there's some spectrum up in the 1600s that they're talking about using also. But the the, the latest I've read about was they're using their SkyTerra satellite as a way of moving corrections around. Uh, and that's fully compatible. There's, again, there's nothing. I think uh, uh, even OmniStar uses that satellite, or it, it could be RTX, Trimble's RTX. I'm not sure which one, but uh, but anyway. So yeah, I, for me, I don't worry about it. I don't. You know, I used to, to really immerse myself in it. You know, lots of years ago. But you know, the system worked as it was supposed to. The FCC did what they were supposed to, uh, and and so I just uh, I'm, I'm somewhat waiting for anything significant to. Uh, to come out from this, but I it just I don't see it right now. There's just still lots of studying going on, um, and 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 granted, you know, Legato will take a run at this frequency uh, spectrum stuff again and and see how much they can leverage it. I mean, that's what they're supposed to do. They've got this spectrum and they want to try to use it, so I don't blame them for that. Yeah, right. And and I I think some of those um, testing and and observations that you're talking about are are the focus of, of the stuff Gavin sent me the other day that I, I forwarded on for you to look at. Uh, but I, mm-hmm. I think it's evidence of what you're just saying. You know, it's, there's still, the system is still operating. It, it hasn't been uh, compromised, so to speak, to say, oh, yeah, let's just jump in and do this. Um, no, So right, right. Still worth keeping your eye on, obviously, to see what happens, but... 
Right. So I look at I look at the documents coming out every once in a while and see if there's anything significant in there. Uh, and I don't I don't see any red flags right now. So there's to me there's no need to to jump in uh, uh, feet first and and dig myself into it again uh, right. until I see something that might uh, that might be a red flag of sorts. But I don't see that right now. Yeah, and I guess part of the 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 whole issue is uh, keeping your eye on who has a concern. Because, like you said before, you know the, the people who had the concern before were the ones who carried the day, and it happened to be beneficial to us. Um, right, right. So if you, if, you, if you keep your eye on who's expressing concern or support one way or the other, then that kind of tells you where things are headed, too, just because of that. Because the, the big players, obviously, are the ones who are going to make all the noise. That's right, yep. I agree. So we got... Uh, couple three minutes left in, in this or almost four minutes left in this segment so we can go ahead and begin if you want to maybe maybe a good way to start is to just maybe talk a little bit about those constellations moving as we're going to move forward and sure then we can get into the applications of what they mean sure i mean it's a, it's a lot of fun right now and it really is because you know you look at the big you know the big uh, difference making events in the last, let's say, 20 years. I mean, first, RTK came out in, uh, you know, mid-90s with GPS only, and and then when GLONASS was, you know, when that constellation was uh, uh, fully populated, what was that, probably in uh, mid-2000, like 2005, I think. I think 2001 GLONASS was at an all-time low, and then they, they boosted it back up. And so when it became operational, uh, it was GPS plus GLONASS, and if anybody had been around and experienced that, you saw the huge difference. I used to, I used to use GPS only RTK a lot in the early 2000s, uh, and it made a huge difference when GLONASS constellation became populated, and I got uh, GPS and GLONASS receivers. And so I think, you know, we're we're right at the beginning of the next big jump. So now, before it was GPS and GLONASS, and now we start adding in. Galileo and Beidou, so Galileo being the European constellation and Beidou being the Chinese constellation, we're going to see another big jump in performance. Uh, in fact, we're already starting to see some of that now. We're doing some some testing here at our at our lab, and and out we've got a test course set up and so on. Uh, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. But I was I was over in Hawaii uh, uh, a couple of months ago and just wanted to see. So I've occupied some, a survey mark over there and took a few receivers over there uh, and was able to see, you know, a lot of satellites. And, uh, you know, I wish I had a slide we could show here, but I'll talk about it here in a minute. Like, you, have a, you have a break coming up here in a second, right? So, uh, Well, a minute and a half or so. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so I'll, I'll briefly hit on that. So I, I went over to Hawaii to speak at a conference and then found a survey mark on there. I ended up hiking about six kilometers to find the survey mark in this residential area that had current coordinates on it in, in, in PAC 11, uh, uh, 2011, or sorry, 2010 epic date. Anyway, and so I took uh, three receivers over there. These were sub-meter type of receivers, so single frequency just using WAS as a correction source, and that's a different subject altogether. Actually, WAS in Hawaii is pretty good you'd be amazed because it's it's so separate from the mainland but i mean it, you know we were i was tracking uh i think i was at five so i was at probably nine gps i'm trying to remember offhand nine gps probably seven glonass five galileo 
and two or three Beidou, as well as the as tracking two WAS satellites that it was using, the receiver was using for ranging. And so the total satellites in view, in use, not in view, in use was 23 satellites. And it was, it was amazing to think about that. You know, back, you know, I remember back in my days of mapping golf courses with RTK and GPS only. I mean, that was punished sometimes next to tree canopy, even just next to them, not even under trees, but next to trees, trees and buildings. You know, I just stand around waiting for minutes and minutes and minutes waiting for it to fix. And the thought of having the building, huh? (laughs) Yeah, the the thought of it, the 23 satellites in view out in the clear sky was just, uh, and it's a lot we, of fun. We need to go to our break. Let's pick this back up in a couple of minutes when we come back. Gotcha. Yes. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not... Get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. So, Eric, you were talking about being in Hawaii, and I'm assuming that was on a job you were doing. You just didn't fly over there to see how many satellites you could get. <laughs> Actually, I was speaking at a conference over there, but... Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, I, I took the opportunity. So, yeah, I was there, and, and actually, I just brought up the data from that uh, from that day. And so I hiked uh, into this residential area, uh, and here's what I was tracking. I was tracking nine GPS, five GLONASS, four Galileo, three Beidou, and then two, uh, two WAS satellites. So a total of 23 satellites in view. And this is what they, sub-meter receiver, you know, one of the more 
modern ones now because lots of submeter receivers don't track all four constellations. This particular one does. And I've got a plot here because what I did is I, so I went out and occupied this survey mark with current coordinates on it. Uh, it was in the NGS database and occupied it for about seven minutes with each receiver that I had. And I'm looking at this plot here, and I've got a latitude error of 30 centimeters, which is a foot, a longitude error of 16 centimeters, which is about a half a foot, and an, an elevation error of about half a foot, too. It's pretty amazing for a sub, not even RTK. This is just using WAS, which is just a free uh, broadcast correction source um, uh, by the FAA. Uh, but it's pretty amazing to think that you can get this kind of consistent accuracy. Now, and I'm looking at this plot, and, yeah, the, the, ele the elevation sort of wiggles around a little bit up to 50 centimeters, but um, but the horizontal is just steady. And so, um, but granted, this is in clear sky environment, and, you know, there's no trees or buildings around or anything like that. So, but this is just a pure baseline test to see, you know, to answer the question I had to myself was, A, how many satellites could I see over there from all four constellations or here? And then, B, what accuracy could I get from that? And, you know, it, what's interesting is that is that WAS, the WAS system only broadcasts corrections for GPS, right? They don't broadcast corrections to the other three. But the, the receiver, I'm sure, has some weighting algorithm in there that will actually use those other satellites uh, and just weight them into the solution. Or even there's some novel ways that they generate corrections based on the WAS after they've uh, started to use the, the GPS corrections, uh, generate corrections for the other constellations. So, but it's just pretty impressive. So that's on the sub-meter, you know, and really it's, it's not even sub-meter anymore, it's sub-half meter these days. And of course, if you go under trees and, and, and near buildings and such, this will blow up a little bit like GPS does. Um, but you start thinking about, you know, using, and this is what the value of multi-constellation, four constellations does, is it, because out in the clear sky, even GPS-only receivers work great, just like in ag, right, agriculture. You have a clear view of the sky. The farmer's more than happy with what GPS-only can deliver. Probably adding some GLONASS just, or adding GLONASS just to cover up some some low satellite visibility parts of the day, but... You know, I'm not sure the farmer is really going to benefit that much from four constellation satellites. But who I do see benefiting are the people certainly working in these tougher environments, you know, in, in, in municipal areas, in and around trees, in and around buildings. Uh, you know, we're gonna, we, we've got a GPS test course that we established up here in, in Oregon, or in Portland, Oregon metro area. And we've got points set up in nasty tree canopy and moderate tree canopy and light canopy and then out in the open. And we actually did some, a lot of testing with submeter receivers last year on that course, but we're getting ready to, to, to perform an RTK test in those, that, on that test course, too, to see how receivers perform in those occluded environments. That's really the difference maker these days is, yeah, everybody works well out in the open sky, but what happens when you're up against, you know, 100-foot-high you know, pine trees or, or oak trees or whatever? or next to buildings, you know, how robust is submeter and RTK receivers in those environments with four constellations? Uh, and I think it's going to be pretty significant. We've done uh, just even, uh, what was it we were at? Oh, I was in Georgia last two weeks ago, 
down there. I set up an RTK base on a water tower to cover an entire county, okay? So this county was about 30 miles uh, uh, across. So we set it up in a water tower that, that was in the middle of the county. And the purpose of this was to broadcast RTK corrections for a local utility that could use it for mapping their infrastructure. So we're talking about valves and fittings and <clears throat> any above-ground assets that uh, that they could find. And so we set the RTK base up, got it broadcasting over the Internet, uh, and then we were able to, to run around the county and try different areas that they had had difficulty with before using I think they had GPS-only receivers and maybe GPS and GLONASS, but certainly the most was two constellations. And we would go to places where they would never have a chance of recording any kind of high-precision data before, and we were getting, you know, a couple of centimeter, three-centimeter kind of positioning on valves that were located, uh, you know, on streets with with probably 100-foot-high trees on either side. Um, they weren't super thick in terms of canopy, but certainly uh, it was challenging. And, you know, with, I tell you, with four constellations uh, broadcasting, it just, you know, I'm going by gut feel right now. It just seemed really, really responsive. Uh, of course, the, uh, the, the, uh, the magic's going to be in the data when we end up producing data and showing the difference because what we'll do is in our testing over the next few months, we're going to, uh, we're going to test GPS and GLONASS versus, G- versus all four constellations and see what the marginal improvement is. I think it's going to be pretty significant, but I don't know if it's 10% better or 50% better. Uh, I don't know yet. It's, I think it's somewhere in between there. <clears throat> but that's the value of these four constellations is it, it, it allows, it's going to allow folks to work more confidently in tougher environments. Uh, and, you know, as high precision GIS and moves into that sort of those sort of areas where you have these tough 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 places to use GNSS um, I think this is going to be somewhat of a I hate to use the word game changer because that's kind of an abused term but boy I tell you there's going to be a, a pretty significant Im- improvement in performance so was the project you were doing in Georgia was that a demonstration project or was that uh, some entity wanting to know how well this would work. So, no, it was, a, it was a deployment. So it was a real project. They had, okay. uh, in the past, they had used, uh, they had used sub-meter handhelds for mapping infrastructure, and they were, uh, they had reached a point where it really wasn't doing enough, it really wasn't performing well enough for them. They desired better accuracy than what they were getting with it, and they desired to be able to map in places where they couldn't currently. And so, uh, they were convinced that four constellations uh, were, was going to help them. I, I think I showed them some data that I thought it would help them too. And so the proof was in a pudding when we went down there. Uh, was We put it up on a, it was about a 65-foot water tower. Uh, we put it right at the top. Uh, they did a great job of, of running some conduit. So we had a 65-foot antenna cable. And at the bottom, we had a uh, the, re- the base station receiver in a water weatherproof box with a uh, a really 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 tiny computer in there that that was running some server software that would serve up the corrections on the internet. So when we were out in the field, all we had to do is to give it an IP address and a port number, uh, and we could stream those corrections to us. And so we spent a, spent a half a day setting up the base station, and then started to run around the county. Just took the rover to different locations in the county where. 
I asked them, I said, well, let's go to the areas where there's spotty cell coverage because that's always a kind of an Achilles heel of RTK. Let's go to those areas. Let's go to areas where uh, you've had difficulty in the past uh, getting uh, reliable positioning. Uh, and we didn't find any location that they had we had gone to where we could not get a fixed RTK position down to sort of this three, four centimeter kind of level. Um, I don't think we ever failed once. Now, for in terms of spotty cell coverage, they actually have pretty good cell coverage throughout the county, and that's always going to be the Achilles heel of RTK. Is you've got to have uh, uh, you've got to have consistent connectivity to the base station. Although there is some sort of interesting technologies out there now, where if you have spotty cell coverage, some receivers will kick in their satellite-based correction service to cover up for that for several minutes, and so you don't have to maintain. Uh, complete uh, connectivity to your RTK base, um, but you need reasonably good RTK or sorry, reasonably good cell coverage for RTK for the for the most part. Um, but I but I, I will say that the satellite correction services. I mean, there's you know since you and I talked five or six years ago, boy, there's been a lot of developments in that space, right? And you, you want to talk about Light Squared or Legato? I mean, that's that's one of the things they're looking at. But boy, you know. Five, six years ago, it was what? It was Omnistar and uh, Trimble RTX was just getting started, but now there's a whole host of them. There's Atlas Service, there's uh, TerraStar, uh, maybe one other of them. You know, in addition to Starfire from John Deere, I guess that was out there at the time too. But I would say that the, 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 the number of vendors supplying satellite-based correction services, the subscription type, has doubled here in the last five or six years. Uh, and so you, you, it's not like RTK where you get centimeter accuracy in a few seconds. You know, you have to wait around for a convergence time to happen. But you, you can start thinking about a hybrid version of a satellite correction service and RTK terrestrial, and they could sort of cover up for one another and sort of help. And that's, that's you're seeing these hybrid type receivers being introduced out there um, that address you know that address the weaknesses of RTK. So, and I will mention that down in this project in Georgia too. Not not just that we were getting uh, centimeter level positioning in really tough environments; is that we were getting it really fast. I mean, it's, it, you know, you know, you and I were talking about this during the break. How, gosh, we look back twenty years when when RTK first started, and we're using GPS only, and it would take several minutes sometimes to get a fixed solution <clears throat> and nowadays when I mean, you hop out of your truck and you turn on your rover and almost as soon as it's tracking enough satellites you're getting a fixed position i mean it's almost it's almost instantaneous to be honest with you we were saying seeing the same thing down in georgia is we'd hop out of the truck turn the rover on it'd be tracking satellites in probably 20 30 seconds and man three or four seconds after that we're getting a fixed solution down at that centimeter level uh, and it, the, the, so the the uh, the level of productivity that we're seeing today versus gosh even you know even even back then we were talking about light squared I mean even six seven years ago it's the level of uh, performance today we're seeing is just maybe orders of magnitude better than it was before. Yeah, that's pretty amazing to to think of, and probably a, a harbinger for how quickly adaptations are going to be coming moving forward. Every time something happens, you keep thinking, man, it can't ever get any better than this. But, uh, the, but th 
things keep happening. So maybe I don't know if right. we want to follow up on this one when we come back. It's about time for the break, but uh, okay. we, we can follow up on this or jump over to another one of your topics or of your situations if you'd like. So let's go sure. uh, okay. do that break, and we'll be back here in just a couple of minutes. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We are back with Eric Gackstadter. As we were leaving, we were talking about uh, your your Georgia project. And was that uh, was the client on that one was somebody who was trying to, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, a resource survey to so they could show where utilities were or that kind of thing. Or, or was yeah, it so it's a, it was it was, it was it, so no, it was an asset. Uh, no, it's an active project. So they uh, and they have actually even they looked at. Uh, they look, they did a few different ROI scenarios, return on investment scenarios. They said, "Hey, you know, maybe we'll just subscribe to an RTK network uh, instead of setting up our own base station, RTK base." And they went to that whole ROI rigmarole. But they did find out that if they set their own up, and it, it wasn't horrendously expensive. I think they spent eight thousand or nine thousand to set up their own RTK base. Um, but when they did the ROI on on a ten year return basis, they came out way way ahead by uh, setting up their own base, and also because they could see the increase in performance. Because if you think about it out there, you know very few RTK networks are supporting four constellations now. And so if you have a four constellation receiver, a rover receiver, and your the RTK network only supports GPS and GLONASS, uh, then the best you're going to get is GPS and GLONASS. Uh, maybe some marginal benefit to uh, with the other two constellations, but certainly not like if the RTK base was broadcasting all four. And so in that case, they broadcast all four. Uh, but they were using it for asset uh, uh, location. So locating all this is a, a sewer and water, so all right. you know wa- water valves and any any above ground sort of assets. Uh, and, and this isn't this isn't unique. I mean, I've worked with lots of utilities before and. And lots of them want to know, uh, you know, where uh, where their stuff is at a pretty accurate level because there's there's situations where you know, for example, if you've got a pave over on a road where a water valve has been paved over uh, during uh, repaving, uh, asphalt repaving, uh, think about it. If you can go out there and locate that asset to sort of a, a three or four inch diameter, uh, then you can dig it up really accurately without having to dig up uh, you know big section of the road where I've seen it before and I've, I've, I've heard of it from utility companies where they've taken a 
excavator out there and had to dig up, you know, a, a, a 10 square foot area, uh, and you just tear up this huge part of road uh, trying to find this particular asset. And so they see a lot of value in being able to do that. And then there's this, the, uh, so that's on, on sort of the, the, that's on one hand. The other hand is that there's, there's, you know, there's safety regs that have been, uh, enacted over the past many years, uh, because people have been uh, injured by exploding gas pipelines and that sort of thing. And and it's amazing, you know, how little some pipeline companies know about their assets. You know, where does their underground pipes run? You know, and, and it's hard to blame them because they've been underground for, you know, decades. And when they first went in the ground, they weren't, you know, the technology wasn't there to map them very well or they didn't take the time to map them very well. Uh, and so these these, these, you know, construction crews are running into pipelines and they're exploding and they're hurting people. And so there's lots of regs that have come down so that uh, uh, that that utilities want to locate their assets much more accurately than than what they have before. And that's driving a that's driving a need for this high precision kind of equipment and and infrastructure. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, you know. The days you're talking about, even if you were surveying around where a utility was for whatever your project happened to be, uh, trying to figure out what impact the location of that utility was going to have on the project uh, was a difficult thing to do because there, there really was no effort made during construction to actually establish where the, the underground pipe or whatever it might be whether it's a fiber optic line or whether it's a, you know, a forty-inch gas line, whatever it is, uh, sure, there really wasn't much of an attempt, if, I, if at all, to, you know, it's too costly. We can't afford to have people out there locating these things. But that's, I think, that's kind of turning around a bit now. It seems to be. Um, I think it so is. That, and I, so I was at a, I was at a conference last year. Let's see, I was at a conference called the Pipeline Conference, I think. And anyway, one of the papers, which is a fascinating paper, was this. And actually, it was a project up here in Portland where they were building a new light rail line uh, on the west side of Portland. And part of the project was trying to estimate, as they were building this new rail, I mean, you can imagine punching a new rail through all this land, and it's a fairly populated area, is how many conflicts they were going to run into with different utilities or other assets and trying to, how do you budget for that? I mean, you think about how complex of a job it is to budget for all those different conflicts, how much is going to, how much time is going to take you to over, overcome those conflicts or address them, without delaying the project? And just think about if you knew fairly accurately where all those conflicts were going to be, how much better your planning would be, and how much better your budgeting would be uh, for those types of major infrastructure projects, or even minor ones for that matter. Right, and and the system that has been in place the. Misutility or whatever they call it in different places of the country, um, really didn't help solve that problem very well. I mean, it, they had different ways of locating, and there's you know subsurface investigation now that makes it better. But you know, in the, in the old days, and when I say old days, we're not that many years ago. Um, it was virtually impossible to try to figure out where anything was and you know imagine you're the surveyor out there and you're going to set a rebar in the ground and you're going to get fried if you hit a fiber optic line and nobody knows how deep they put it or actually where they did put it and 
the utility right. company comes out and marks a strip about three feet wide and says, there it is. Well, you know, a rebar's, what, a inch across maybe or <laughs> maybe not. Right. So, so right. uh, the more that can be done in, in, for lack of a better term, pre-locating as construction occurs, the, the, the actual precise and accurate location is, is certainly, it seems certainly worth the effort moving forward not only from the, the aspect of knowing where it is so you don't you don't hit it, but just for the company itself to know where its assets actually are. That's right. That's exactly right. And it, and, and the thing is, is even even if you call your locating service and they come out and locate, you still see instances of people running into uh, utility critical utilities. It happened in Portland just last year. I was in fact I was traveling, but uh, you know I'm living in Portland, but I was traveling at the time, but. You know, I, I turn on the news, I look back, and like a half a city block was blown up in, in part of Portland because uh, a crew had hit uh, had hit uh, some utility that caused an explosion. Yeah, probably and a natural gas line or something. Prob- probably a natural gas line, and, and they, uh, you know, I, I don't know for sure. I didn't do an investigation or anything, but I'm sure they probably followed protocol, which would be to, to call the locate service, and locate service probably came out. And, uh, you know, what it came down to most likely was just bad data. Just uh, bad marking or bad data, and um, you know, there's, there's, so there is a big, there is certainly a big push in the utility space to, and it's, it's all across the board. It's water, gas, electric, uh, telecom, all those, uh, to locate their assets, assets more accurately. Uh, and we, we see a, we see a, I see a big push in that direction. Yeah, certainly. very true. And, and you and I were talking about a little bit at the break about challenges for the surveying profession with, with. Uh, equipment becoming much more high precision, uh, so that uh, you know positioning that you're gathering has, has a, a higher quality. So, how does that affect what surveyors have traditionally done? And it does have an impact, of course. Uh, one side of it is surveyors can be part of that that team, so to speak, and, and somewhat depends on what you're talking about. And we talk we talk about this on the show all the time. People get tired of hearing about it, but you, know, the, you talked about accuracy and precise measurement and in the surveying world when it comes to what we're basically licensed to do which is land boundaries uh, precise measurement is a great tool but it doesn't determine accuracy when you're trying to define where um, an intended where someone intended a corner to be because if Mm -hmm. you just take a a GPS coordinate off a you know out of a county database or something you got to know how that was created before you know if it's accurate you can measure it precisely, but is it actually accurate? And so gotcha. in that particular realm of it, from the surveyor's perspective, um, or the perspective of surveying in general, uh, there's a big learning curve uh, all across the board, particularly for those who use the equipment or in the recording offices or whatever, who don't have an understanding of you know, precision in surveying land boundaries does not equal accuracy in every case. Um, right, but, and and so that's one side of it. But then you got the other side, where you have this very precise measuring tool or data gathering tool, um, and then at that point, once you've got that position on it and it's a high precision location, then replicating that high precision location isn't as difficult because it, you're not basing it on other factors. You're not basing it on how all the the other land boundaries affect it. You know, there's no there's no parcel of land that stands alone. They're all affected right. by all the others. But in right. the case you're talking about with utilities, when you're locating those positions and you get high precision, then 
that actually sits that monuments it or or uh, archives it really. So uh, that's right. It's, it's a great tool. Yeah, it is, and and you and you're going to see this. You know, and I've been talking about this for years and, and writing about this for years is that this technology is going to become more and more accessible to more and more people as we move into the future. And so just like, you know, this project in Georgia, <clears throat> these folks now at the technician level have the power to go out and to map assets at the centimeter level. Uh, and so, and, 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 and I agree with folks who say, well, that's just the collection part, but it's sort of the easy part. It's kind of like flying a drone, right? Yeah. When you fly a drone, and I fly lots of drones, uh, when you fly a drone, it, it, it's sort of anticlimactic when you fly it because, you, you know, you can fly 50 acres in 40 minutes and, be, and have, you know, but the real work starts on the back end uh, when you take all this data and, and produce deliverables out of it, whether it's, you know, ortho photos or DEMs or elevation contours or whatever. It's the same thing with this, with RTK, is that, you know, yeah, I can get an RTK position, the centimeter position in a few seconds, um, but okay, then okay. Do you have your database set up right on your in your GIS, and and what datum is it referenced to? Exactly. Uh, and are you are you reconciling all these this data together in an accurate way? And there's a, and I've written about this a lot. There's a major lack of knowledge in the GIS industry about horizontal datums and vertical datums, uh, and they need a lot of help. And I've I've told surveyors this for years. I said. This is some place where you really fit in that, that folks need a lot of help with. And if you don't help them, then they're going to go out and figure it out themselves and learn it themselves uh, and, and handle it. And a lot of them have. Um, in fact, Esri's even coming around now. I mean, you, you know, I've been speaking with them for years, and, and Kevin Kelly, who's the geodesist there, has done a great job of promoting this internally at Esri, and, and it's gaining traction there. And so Esri's, Esri's coming around, you know, they've, They've had, uh, you know, some some datum transformation. Have to go to break issues. in a few seconds. Maybe this will be a good point to come okay. back on, well, because that this, is, yep. this is a topic surveyors are going to want to hear about with Esri in particular. So, let's we'll be gotcha. back in just a couple minutes. Quick stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not. Get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for QuickStakes today. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. 
Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number. 800-438-0387 or go to quickstake.com that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E dot com and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Coming back into our last segment today with Eric Gackstatter, and an interesting comment you made near the end of the of the last one, and well, two comments actually. Um, one was uh, the surveyors have an opportunity, and and during the break I mentioned if we can figure out how to do that without being preachy and and get people to buy into what we're talking about rather than than seeming to condemn them, then that that'll be a big step forward for us. But. The, the other the other part of it is that I, I was thinking about as you were talking is the whole accountability side. You know, that is one thing that the surveyor does have is accountability because of the license. And so th- there are opportunities there for us. And, and I know a lot of people, a lot of surveyors are out there really taking advantage of that and doing a good job with it. But I was intrigued when you mentioned Esri because that's always been an, an interesting dynamic with, with Esri and the surveying world. Uh, so yeah. I'm, I'm interested in what, you, what you're thinking when you mentioned them. Yeah, so you think about, you look at where Esri's gone, and the reason we, we talk about Esri is because they dominate the GIS software industry. I mean, I, I mean, absolutely dominate. There's nobody even close worldwide. to what they're doing. <laughs> yes, yes, worldwide. Uh, and they've got, uh, you know, that, that user conference in San Diego is at, what, 14,000, 15,000 people. I mean, it's a, yep. it's a monster, and it brings in people from many different countries. So, but you look at what's happening there, and uh, you know they've they've and we talked about this during the break, but they've they've shut down the survey summit now. Okay, so they're not as focused, they're not as survey, I guess centric or not centric, but survey connected as they used to be. And then last year, about this time, they upgraded their software, their sort of primary data collection software, to incorporate RTK. Um, so they know that there's an audience out there in the GIS space that wants high precision, and and they're gaining a lot of traction there. Um, but that, and, but this does it create like we were talking about it. It creates an opportunity for surveyors certainly to engage with uh, GIS folks. Um, and, and I've been writing about this for years. Is that GIS folks they need they need help. They, you know, geodesy is not a subject that's taught very well in in GIS. Curriculums, and and it's a it's a it's a somewhat complicated topic. I mean, I try to write about it, and I make mistakes sometimes because I even I have a hard time getting a handle around it sometimes, especially on elevations. Horizontally, I've got a pretty good grip on it now, but but it's not an easy subject if you if you're not sort of knee deep into it. And you know, these GIS 
managers have tremendous amounts of, of, of tasks that they have to deal with, and, and this is a major one that they, just, they need help on. And I've helped a lot of them over the years, um, but it's always sort of been to me a scenario where, gosh, you know, a, a local surveyor assuming that they were versant in geodesy, you know, horizontal datums and vertical datums, and could help a, a GIS manager, you know, work with the with the database and make sure that their spatial database is reasonable. Because um, you think about, I mean, you think about a utility company that's got, you know, decades of legacy data. How do you combine and reconcile all that data together in a way that doesn't make a complete mess out of it, right? And I've seen some complete messes out there. There's been some good stuff out there, but I've seen some places that were just a, a, a absolute mess, and you don't. It would take months sorting through it to figure out what's what. But they've got to face that music sometime in the future, certainly. Um, yeah, I think it. But uh, you know, I, actually, you mentioning that is. I, I just wrote down a note to myself: the the three words evolution of the profession. Um, but but you're right because it's one of those things that it's it's a reality and historically um you know quote land surveyors were not educated even in school for to to grasp this whole geodesy concept the way it's essential to be now so you can see that's that's one thing we talk about all the time here on the show and in general among surveyors is you know what's the future going to be where uh, the average age is old and where's the next the next generation coming from and there, there's lots of conversation and I talk about how that's going to happen but that evolution of the of the 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 animal itself uh, involves all these things you're talking about as well because the, you won't be able to necessarily continue to to be a vibrant person in the profession if the only thing that you're left with is solving land boundaries just because right. the way that things change and how that work actually gets caught up in the whole the old GIS world you really have to figure out how to understand that and, and I think a, a, a big part of it is if if you're and I mentioned this probably for the last 10 years I've probably written about this if your business is centered it continues to be centered around field work of collecting data then you're in for a big challenge because the, the the cost of collecting data is decreasing, and you, you just won't be able to charge the kind of fees that you used to outside of boundary surveys. I'm talking about asset, you know, asset collection, sure. that sort of the topo surveys, those sorts of things. Anybody will be able to do that. Granted, you have to. I'm not talking about the regulatory part. I'm talking about the technology part of it. Is that you'll have the tools? These folks will have the tools where they can send out an intern, and I've seen it. They'll send out an intern with an RTK receiver, and that intern was raised on smartphones and iPads and Xboxes. And that intern is about as efficient as anybody I've seen out there collecting data with this kind of with this RTK kind of equipment. And so you can't, you don't want to actually, you probably can't fight that battle. And number two, you probably don't want to fight that battle because you, you'd be making ten bucks an hour. That's an exaggeration, right. but you know what I mean, right? You don't, yeah. you know, you're not going to get professional kind of fees. Now, where where the fees are and where the value is is back in the office when you've got to reconcile all this data and and bring it into a system that 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 really is is again reconcile you're going to reconcile this data 
So it matches up with all the aerial photography and other kinds of data that you're incorporating to GIS. I mean, you know, surveyors traditionally have been sort of project-based. You know, I'm going to go out, I need to go out and survey the subdivision. Uh, I'm going to go out and do my work. It's going to be three months, and then, you know, I'm going to file all the information I need to, and it's all going to go in a file cabinet when I'm done, and I close that project out, and I move on to the next one. The GIS industry is a completely different animal. It's, it's, they are long-term data managers. They don't file anything, or rarely do they file anything. They keep data from eons ago, and they've got to, they've got to make it match up uh, to, that, to current data. So how do you match up data that was collected last week with RTK that's referenced to NET 83 2011 to photography maybe that was from 10 years ago or even worse, CAD drawings that were digitized from 10 years mm. ago. Yeah. They have to manage all that data. They have to, they can't just throw it away and say, well, that project's done, let's move on to the next one. They are data stewards and where traditionally surveyors have been sort of project-oriented you know, do a project for three months, file it, get paid, move on to the next one, right? And that's a big difference maker there. So it's really a, a, a looking from the perspective of, of the mindset itself as you prepare to to run a business. And, and, and you see this pretty often with a lot of the young people coming out of school now in the way they're establishing their businesses, the way they're setting them up, the focus they have, um, getting into that whole concept you were just talking about with the reality of th- these people out here that are in the same orb that I'm in, um, I need to be prepared to be part of that arena and not separate right. from it. Right. It, it can't be this adversarial relationship. And it's uh, the GIS machine is going to – the train is going. I mean, it's left the station. You know, and it's just – you know, it's not going to wait for your for, – for the surveyor to show up and 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 say, "Hey, I'm here now. I'm to save the day." It's you, the surveyor's got to be a. They got to be educated and be knowledgeable in, in in subjects that matter to the GIS manager. Uh, and b. They have to engage with them. Uh, right. And and all that being said, is not in any way um, uh, speaking detrimentally of the you know the time honored thing that we as surveyors do, which is you know protect the public and their land and and their their land boundaries and the integrity of those things those things will never change how right. they get how they get integrated into GIS systems is a whole other question <laughs> and that's where some right. part of the friction comes from actually uh, right is is trying to work through all that and you know we're, we're always hearing the stories of somebody taking a, a GIS coordinate and going out and determining that's where their land boundary is and it really isn't right. because the way that system was set up so it, the the thing you're talking about is isn't one of uh, a replacement for what we do. It's really an augmentation of what we do and our our ability to grasp what that is. Right, and and the whole, the whole boundary survey market. I mean, that's always going to be a surveyor centric. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But it's such a it's such a tiny piece, um, and some folks will just that's all they want to do, and that's that's fantastic. That's one. But that's what you want to do. Then great. Um, but outside of that, there's so many more opportunities from a data management standpoint, a spatial data management standpoint, in the GIS space. If there is a, a surveyor who's interested in that, there's certainly there's tons of opportunity out there, and 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 the market's ready for it. It's been ready for it, and it's it's still ready for it. 
Yeah, but it's moving see, forward no matter what. Right, and I, and I see more and more of that adaptation from people in our membership and just people I know. Uh, you know, even people who are working down in the middle of nowhere mountains where I grew up. You know, they're they're recognizing those same things. So you are seeing that adjustment that people are making. Um, it's just not fully implemented it through throughout, but you do see it happening. Yes, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. It's this whole, I mean, everybody talks about big data. I mean, this is a great example is GIS has turned into big data, and just, there's tons and tons of data coming in, and how do you reconcile all the data spatially to each other? And, and uh, it's, a, it's a huge data management headache that they need help solving. Yep, no question about that. Well, we're about a minute and a half out. What, what's your best advice moving forward? Well, it, there's no doubt, and I've been writing about this and talking about it for years, is that high-precision GNSS technology is only getting better and better. It's, it, right now, we're at sort of the really at the, at the cusp of it really taking off because Galileo is launching satellites consistently now. They'll, they'll launch four more uh, this summer or this fall. Uh, so that, part, that, that, will, that constellation will increase. The Chinese will do the same thing, and so, you know, Three and each time they launch more, if your receiver is capable of handling all four constellations, you're going to get incremental benefit from that. Uh, so, uh, I, I'd be if I was looking at buying, you know, GNSS equipment out there, I'd be looking at you know buying a four constellation receiver for sure. And then, you know, the challenge is going to be lots of the RTK networks out there aren't keeping up, and so maybe you end up setting up your own RTK base yourself that broadcasts four constellations right. to yourself or to a, to a wide area. I'm seeing more and more trending in that area uh, because it, it's it's really difficult for state agencies to afford uh, to to upgrade all the receivers and antennas to four constellations, Very three true. frequencies. Well, that's great advice. I appreciate you being with me today. It's been fantastic to have you back on the show. We'll have to do this uh, sooner than the amount of time we've wasted between the last time you were here. But, again, I really do appreciate great. you joining me today. It's been great information, and I'm sure the audience will get a lot out of it, as as have I. So let's stay in touch and stay on top of things. Thanks, Kurt. Take care. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not... Get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today.